good evening. Welcome to the EPL show on this Wednesday night. My name is Oscar Rutherford. I'm joined tonight, of course, as always, by the evergreen Josh Parrish. Josh, how are you this evening? Evergreen. Evergreen. Uh, am I as evergreen as Nikolai Topper Stanley is? Probably not quite. Well, yeah, we, let's be reasonable here. More deciduous than that. <laughs> There's bits starting to fall off me as we as we approach the winter months. <laughs> I'm starting to collapse piece by piece, leaf by leaf. But uh, alas, we uh, no. Uh, the Premier League is uh, is hotting up though. We're coming back with some uh, uh, after some international action, and it's well the public discourse around the league probably as insane as it ever has been. I think people are hankering for some actual matches to talk about so they can stop tweeting. I think that's right. We're seeing many things hit the social media sphere of various degrees of seriousness and importance. Uh, We were speaking just before about one of perhaps most interesting being the Harry Maguire booing incident that's been happening at the most recent England game. Uh, The kind of response that, you know, is perhaps... Well, I, I was going to say it's been coming. I don't think it really has. It's kind of, I find it a bit strange, actually, mm. because a player who I understand that Manchester United fans haven't been too crazy about this season, but to see that filter through to the national team is, is a bit odd and unexpected, I thought. It is odd, uh, especially in a 3-0 win over mm. Ivory Coast. It was when his name was read out right. that they started booing. And his England teammates and his manager have quickly rallied around him. Uh, Jordan Henderson posting on his uh, social media, I can't get my head around what happened at Wembley tonight. Harry Maguire has been a colossus for England. Without him, the to- progress made at the last two tournaments would not have been possible. To be booed at his home stadium for no reason? What have we become? What happened tonight was just wrong. As someone who wants to win with England, I feel fortunate to share a dressing room with him. We all feel the same, presumably him and his England teammates and not the fans who were. I was going to say about booing Harry Maguire. Mm. (laughs) And uh, Gareth Southgate, the reception was a joke, an absolute joke. I don't know how it benefits anybody. We're either all in it together or we're not. Well, it seems like you're not, Gareth, but anyway. I imagine if you asked a few of them why they did it, they probably wouldn't even be able to answer. It's mob mentality. One end of the ground, you have a hardcore group trying to get his name sung. It wasn't everybody. Players will look at that and think, that could be me. It makes players not want to come. It has happened in the past with John Barnes. We need Harry to do well. We aren't going to win a World Cup with a load of players with three or four caps. That's never happened in the history of the game. I will pick up on one thing that he said about we're all in this together or we're not. I'm, I'm not at all convinced by the idea that a, f- a fan group has to be unified in its support of all the players of a team. I think that's mm. incorrect. But I can still agree with some of the sentiment about... Um, well, well, can, it's a good question about whether Harry, how important has Harry Maguire been to this England team because he's actually consistently performed quite well for England, really, hasn't he? So I think it's just his reputation mm. from Manchester United carrying through, which is weird to his England yeah. performances, which, which is weird because that hasn't that that's affected other fans positively as opposed to negatively. Mm. I don't know why there's this negative perception of Harry Maguire. Maybe because yeah. London's full of Manchester United fans. That's they were right. All, they were the one, maybe the ones yeah. booing him. I, I wish we had a, a demographic breakdown mm. of the fans who were booing, but unfortunately such technology does not yet exist and it would be you know, slightly Black Mirror-esque if we could uh, draw that up. But, I mean, 
I don't see how England fans really have reason to complain. They hadn't qualified for the final of a major tournament since 66, and they got to the Euro final and only lost it on penalties. So whatever you might think about Gareth Southgate's overly cautious tactics, whatever you might think about individual selections and so forth, England are going to the World Cup, which is more than can be said for a lot of other Mm. high-profile European nations. Hello, Nick DeBano, if you're watching. Uh, And... I just don't really see cause for this kind of booing at a friendly match. It's just it's it's very strange to me. I don't see I don't really see the not not so much. I don't I don't necessarily agree that fans should always be unanimous clapping. Let's go team. Let's go. No matter what is happening on the pitch, I think fans have a right to voice their opinion. But I just don't think that opinion is justified in this situation. Yeah, I th- I, th- I think that's right. I think it's. I don't think either of us is saying that fans should never boo people kind of things or, or, or express dissatisfaction yeah, to exactly. some extent. Um, but just in this particular instance, it feels unwarranted. It feels misplaced almost. Um, but, you know, of course, reaching the final of the Euros guarantees success forever after. So, you know, it's, um, you'd think that that would have a lot of I'm not of saying I'm particularly optimistic about England's chances no. of winning the World Cup this year. But I, I still don't think it justifies, you know, booing... One of your starting players just because he's Harry Maguire and just because he's made a tit of himself for Manchester United this season. Maybe maybe they're booing the idea of Harry Maguire starting. Maybe they think <laughs> that, you know, despite his international form, his uh, appearances for his club and his, his poor um, showing for Manchester United means he should be dropped from the England national team. Maybe they're really booing Gareth Southgate. That's it, a long bow. Yeah, wow. It's what Harry Maguire represents, mm. not, not who he is. It's the idea of Harry it's Maguire. The idea it's of not Harry Maguire. Slabhead himself, <laughs> but what he represents. Very profound, I think, <laughs> of you to of you to suggest, Josh. But of course, speaking of Manchester United, it's not the only thing that we've seen popping up in particularly a social media context about certain individuals at Manchester United or perhaps figures at the club. Gary Neville, of course, put out a tweet uh, just after United got knocked out of the Champions League by Atletico Madrid, uh, criticising the current squad of players for being seen all over the world at all sorts of events, having a good time, um, having just lost to Atletico Madrid, as I say. It feels like the kind of conversation that we have quite regularly in particularly Premier League circles and... I'm kind of always struck by the same conclusion of of surely you want players to have lives. And also I imagine that uh Gary Neville he spoke about this this isn't this wasn't how we'd do it when I was playing and if we if we got a drawer at home you wouldn't see us at any local restaurant, let alone out having a party having been knocked out of the, the Europe out of Europe. I think that's very much a romanticised version of what happened. I mean, we spoke about just a few weeks ago about mm. Wayne Rooney, for example, and kind of the things that we didn't see. Like maybe the version that responses to to disappointment on the pitch. Sorry, let me start the sentence again. The way players respond to disappointment on the pitch may have changed or the visibility of it might have mm. changed, but I don't think it's real to say that players... Well, let, let's read the out. tweet first yeah, before yeah, we get into the, the the meta analysis. Uh, Gary Neville uh, tweeted, "I remember a time when you, should I do his voice or should <laughs> I?" <laughs> 
Remember a time when United players, managers, executives wouldn't be seen in their local Italian after a draw at home, let alone getting not no, it's not it's going Scottish <laughs> now. I've lost it. Get let alone getting knocked out of Europe. This last week we've seen a global tour of F1 concerts, cricket, and UFC events. And my favourite bit: this lot are tone deaf. Tone deaf. It's so uh, perfectly uh, Piers Morgan in its tone, isn't yeah. it? It's just that 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 perfect shrill note to hit that gets traction on Twitter one way or another. Um, and it's certainly divided opinion, this this take, and it's it's a real hot one, a steaming hot take. But I I don't think we in his day, when he wouldn't be seen in wouldn't be seen in his local Italian, uh, is comparing apples with apples. No. I I mean he didn't have a social media profile when he was playing. Uh, you know, he retired before, you know, even Facebook was popular or maybe existed. So, you know, let alone Instagram or Snapchat or whatever these players are using um, to uh, show off what they're doing. And it's it's not even necessarily players posting things on their own social media of their own volition, but also them being seen at these events. So I don't think that... Gary Neville is saying that you should do a Wayne Rooney and lock yourself in a dark room for two weeks and drink yourself into oblivion and feel like, you know, just as repentance from you for your poor performance. I think he's saying you just got to do it on the sly, which is what he actually argues in one of his follow-up tweets, which is hilarious because Gary Neville never played in an era where everybody has a smartphone in their pocket, you know, that can not only take photos and videos in an instant, but also live stream anywhere in the world in a second. He didn't live in that era. You know, he was in like Steve Bruce's pub, you know, they'd shut the curtains, do a lock-in and, you know, uh, and if the phone rang, they'd just say nobody was there. Like (laughs) he's living in a, he was, he was playing in a different era whereby you could get away with a lot more off the pitch without quote unquote, causing a ruckus or raising a fuss. So, I think this is classic middle-aged man yells at cloud stuff. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think you also brought up an important distinction between players themselves necessarily tweeting or, or putting something out and also just being photographed or captured at those mm. events because this isn't kind of the Jolly and Les Scott level of, you know, tweeting out a picture of your nice car after you've lost kind of thing. It's lots of the time it's just literally other people filming them being there, which feels very... Very, very harsh on the players to be. And after seen. a loss, they just happen to have some time off. Sometimes, you know, there's a break in fixtures. They would have had a game, but they got knocked out of the FA Cup. So, you know, you could go on your holidays. I mean, Ralph Ranick was watching cricket in Barbados. So it was not not just the players who were having time off. And that's not like I know we like to read into things, but that's not the problem at the club. The problem isn't that the players are going out afterwards. We talk about we, we spoke mm. about Manchester City players going out afterwards. They keep winning games of football. Like it's so not there's so not this direct correlation mm. that we like to think that there is. I know that like, like we like to draw these long bows, but it's just not there. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think sometimes it's easier for a sound bite for you know somebody to sound off about players you know going out on the town and getting drunk as a reason for their poor performances as opposed to the stuff on the pitch that's more difficult to actually analyse. It's a lazy shortcut to um, to an explanation. And I, I, I think we see it a lot 
across sports media and the coverage of, of sports people is it leans... I think we saw it after the Socceroos game, uh, not to bring it too mm. close to an Australian lens. I think we saw it after the Socceroos game with the Channel 10 coverage where instead of talking about the tactical failings on the night against Japan, the pundits were busy talking about a player who didn't even play, skipping the next match, which was a dead rubber for his wedding, you know, and questioning his lack of commitment to the national team as being emblematic of the rest of the players. That is a lazy shortcut to an explanation, and, and so is this. I think you see it the world over, but this is a particularly glaring example of that. Yeah, I think that's a really prominent comparison to make and I think it's really fair and it is the same thing that's going on and it's it's also I think about you know it's lazy but it's also glorifying the old days I think that if Mm. you're an old player you'd like to imagine yourself as this kind of military level soldier who's going in to do all these things week in week out that wasn't necessarily the case and to be fair we have seen since the Gary Neville tweet some other players come out and offer some level of defence or some kind of questioning of what was being said. I I saw Gary Lineker put something out where he was saying, was that really what was going on? Even um, Clayton Blackmore, which is is a name that I I don't come across too Mm. often, but former Manchester United player Clayton Blackmore saying, yeah, look, not too sure that that there's a legitimacy to what Gary's saying there. Yeah, I I find this... um... I, I, I find this a very, yeah, lazy analysis, but I also think that it links into, whether consciously or not, it links into a lot of the uh, criticism of Marcus Rashford and the bad faith stuff. That, and I, I think Gary Neville would hate to be associated with this given his other, you know, political views. He's... I, I had to scroll a long way back through the timeline to find that because he was busy complaining about Boris Johnson mm. for most of it. So I'm not saying he, he shares this view at all. But when you start talking about what players are doing off the pitch in their their spare time as reasons for what's happening on the field, even when they're attending every required training session and every required recovery session and so forth. You know, inside reports into the club about players' work ethic and falling outs and, you know, uh, cultural problems, that's that's a different thing. But when you're drawing a long bow just from looking at the outside and seeing what how a player is visible and therefore saying that's the reason, you know, they're not focused on football, it's kind of the same argument lazy argument you're falling back on the marcus rashford situation where it's like well you know he's doing all this political stuff it's a distraction there's no wonder he's getting injured all the time and he's not playing well and i i think that's a a kind of slippery slope because that that those sorts of um uh, yeah those sorts of assertions about about rashford can come from a quite a bad faith Mm. place and you know neville is unwittingly associating himself with some of the real gammons of uh, of British public life. Well, why do you, do you, do you think it is just laziness that says doing, say, a tactical analysis would be too hard? Is that do you think that's what it is? I think tactical analysis and uh, comprehensive breakdowns of what's actually happening on the field is more intellectually taxing than talking about players being too lazy and so forth. But it's also it's. A lot less clickbaity to say that, yeah. you know, uh, Scott McTominay's lack of progressive passing um, is the reason for Manchester United's decline as opposed to, you know, um, a player, uh, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo 
uh, being a diva and mm. uh, causing a locker room ruckus. So, like that personality politics stuff is uh, way more headline grabbing and way more attention seeking and way more clickbaity than uh, the the other. What's actually going on in the pitch? It's a, it seems to be everything around football that obsesses us about it, and less so the actual you know stuff that happens on the green thing. Mm. And I think it is a search for uh, for attention and, and relevance in a way. I think particularly in a league like the Premier League when so much of it's based on these personalities, on these mm. figures as opposed to the football itself. I mean, look at Roy Keane. All yeah. he ever talks about, he's the, the highest paid pundit mm. uh, and the most viewed pundit. And all he ever talks about is the player's lack of commitment mm. um, and that they're, they're soft and, you know, they're pampered and, you know, he would... Uh, sacked a lot of them or you know kicked them up in the air in a training session and you know that that stuff um is very easily digestible i suppose in short sound bites and it fits into the kind of uh stone age english football mentality of uh these uh, you know these modern day divas they don't know how good they've got it you know, everything was better back in the old days. Seems to be a pervasive mindset in the UK in particular. Um, and I, I think you, you see that that pattern borne out in, in this Neville tweet as well. Yeah, the, the disconnect between what playing professional football in the UK was like in the 80s and early 90s compared to now. I feel like where what's changed in that transition phase kind of brings with it this this glorifying of the past mm. and shooting down of the new is kind of that they don't get it anymore kind of thing. Yeah, and it's it's also so uh, hypocritical because all I ever hear about those days is, you know, Tony Adams and the Tuesday Club and the Arsenal players drinking and drinking and, mm. you know, carrying on and not taking care of themselves and then turning up match day and they still got the job done and got the three points that's and right. therefore it was a, a halcyon that's day. That's awesome, isn't it? You go, how cool is mm. it that they were able to do that? They were able yeah. to turn up to training hungover and then, you know, smash shit out on a Saturday. It's but apparently of- they were actually more committed and disciplined yeah. back in back in their day, which is you know such a, a logical disconnect. It's it's cognitive dissonance there. And I wonder at what point you link this to arguments about having the diversity within the media of not just former players who kind of can all create this culture or promote this coherent narrative of what playing football mm. was like 30 years ago or 20 years ago kind of thing. And maybe if you have more disruptors, that makes it more effective. One other point I was going to make was I wonder how much of it's... It, it's just... Well, I'm sure it is just an emotional response kind of thing. When you talk about mm. the Roy Keane post-games kind of thing, or even the Gary Neville's, just you see this stuff and... and I think Neville's is an emotional response. I think Roy Keane, to a certain extent, is a performative response because that's what he's paid to do now by Sky. I feel like Roy Keane has become slightly self-aware, but as you were. <laughs> no, I, look, that's that's probably true, actually, as you say. But but the Gary, the Gary Neville thing of... of yeah, the, it's... You you have these pundits or these commentators who will bring emotion, which is valuable mm. to an extent. But you know that's kind of uh, it, it's it's odd to come out in a tweet. I imagine he's seen that and then done that quite quickly, one after the other, as opposed to that being a processed or deeply thought. Deeply no, don't, I don't think he's got. I don't think he's got a PR team. No, of, you know, checking that one. No, I think that's right. Uh, it is an instinctive um, anger, and I I'm not sure if Gary Neville is quite. Uh, come to terms with the fact that his club is just not an elite footballing institution anymore. (laughs) 
and he can't quite process why that's happened because he was very pro Mourinho when Mourinho came in. You know, he's. Uh, I, I do think like his analysis when he's when he's got the match footage in front of him can be very very strong, but then his overall conclusions that he draws about the cultural issues in the game and so forth um, can be very uh, very old school and very reactive um, because he's harking back to an era where Manchester United were dominant and they're not anymore. And it's kind of hard to come to terms with that and process that. And I wonder how much what there was a quote this week from Louis van Gaal, former Manchester United manager, saying in discussing the potential of Eric Ten Hag moving to become the next United manager, saying, I think it was Manchester United isn't a football club, it's a commercial club more or less, kind of criticising the the very core of what Manchester United is. And I wonder how much that kind of becomes more prominent when you when you mm. where, where, is that the kind of reactionary emotional thing that we're talking about, or is there more merit to that? Is that more of a a well considered thought out? That's actually the crux of the problem at Manchester United is that they're not as interested in winning football games as the other clubs. I in Van Hal's case, it's an interesting one because I think he's absolutely spot on. Yeah. It is a commercial institution. They haven't prioritized football. They they make decisions for non-footballing reasons all the time, such as how marketable players are, yeah. uh, and I think that's a big reason why you know Paul Pogba's been paid you know three hundred thousand or four hundred thousand pounds a week for a long time, despite not really being starting player anymore. Um, and they've even offered him a contract extension. It's him that's deciding to not to sign it, not the club by by all, all reports. So, you know that's that's extraordinary, and you can tell it that's not that's not performance based. No, and that, that's that's driven by other motivations. Um, but uh, you also look at Van Hal, and he always has some sort of personal axe to grind. <laughs> Whenever he comes out with a public statement, it's always based on some historical you know slight that he feels. Yeah. Uh, even when he came out and smashed the, uh, the Qatar World Cup, um, you know, it's ridiculous that we're going to play in a country, how does FIFA say it, to develop the football there, to develop it better there? And how are you doing that? By organizing a tournament in that country, but it doesn't matter. It's about money, commercial interests. Um, and, you know, uh, <laughs> that's the quote that went around mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of people were praising him for his, you know, moral backbone and standing up to FIFA and so forth. But in the exact same interview, he also complained about how he wasn't on any of the FIFA technical committees and they hadn't got him involved yet. So <laughs> I think with Van Hal, I don't know whether it always comes from a place of, you know, he genuinely feels these things that might also be true, but there always seems to be some sort of personal axe to grind in the background. In this case, it's him still being angry about how he was treated at Manchester United and being sacked directly after winning an FA Cup. I think that's right. I think this is kind of a combination of those things, of the emotional kind mm. of not rational response. He's right, but, also, but it's also sour grapes. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 <laughs> that's really, and and that that's but you know Louis Van yes, but he's right. He's right as well. He's also yeah. right, which is which whether he's right for the for good reasons. <laughs> he, well, what he's it, right well, for the wrong for reasons. reasons. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, I think that that's fundamentally far more relevant than. The, the the attitude that the club or the way the club views itself, I think, is far more relevant to any of the any individual player or even collective player behaviours. But with that, I think we should uh, we should go to an ad break. I think we should. Uh, we've got more to come up, including uh, an attempted poisoning, maybe, of Roman Abramovich, <laughs> maybe. 
we'll we'll dive into it. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see. We're not sure. Maybe maybe he was poisoned. Maybe he wasn't. We'll, we'll we'll cover it. But yeah, we'll be back right after the break. To the EPL show yet again, still on a Wednesday night. The night is still young. Josh, we've already broken down Manchester United so far tonight. Now it's time to talk about some more sinister things that may or may not be going on in the world. Of more sinister than Manchester United. More sinister than Manchester United. Oh. I'm, I'm, we're going there. Apparently, allegedly, possibly... Confusingly. Confusingly. (laughs) Roman Abramovich, former owner of Chelsea, was poisoned? Well, currently frozen out owner of Chelsea, I suppose. Soon to be former owner of Chelsea. Enforced outgoing owner of Chelsea, Roman Abramovich. Um, Yeah, this is a pretty mysterious incident. Um, It seemed like in his statement where he talked about wanting to pursue peace between Russia and Ukraine, he was actually serious about that. Yeah. Which, I mean, credit to the guy. Like, he's obviously putting himself out there, potentially putting himself at at physical risk. And it's unclear as to whether it was an environmental toxin, shall we say, or quite literally a chemical weapon. Well, that's right. And of course, this this conversation happens in the context of many broader geopolitical relevant things. I just want to say that I'm just scrolling through the ABC article on, on, on this, which uh, has written in bold, Roman Abramovich is very rich, which, <laughs> which I think is very insightful <laughs> and good to know. Well, not as rich <laughs> as he was, or it doesn't, at least doesn't have access to as much money as he once did. But uh, but yes, that is, that is accurate. Well done, ABC. <laughs> Uh, but of course, his soon-to-be former club Chelsea, meanwhile, are vaguely recovering from the various frozen assets and things not being allowed to function for a certain period of time. They've been allowed to sell away tickets again now. I think they still can't sell home tickets, which is causing some various degrees of outrage and whether the supporters should be being punished for this and and all that kind of that mm. that really hard that fine line that sport has to tread between, or even the world has to tread between punishing individuals but also mm. sending a message kind of thing. I, I think there's an extremely easy answer to this, and that is to allow Chelsea to sell home tickets, to allow the fans to attend, but the profits from those tickets yep. to go to the victims of the conflict in Ukraine. And I think that they have... There are aspects of what's going on at Chelsea at the moment that does work like that, that whatever money mm. we get from doing this will go to some organisation or to help some victims yeah. from the Ukraine crisis. Because I don't, I don't think just based on the actions of the owner, what is fundamentally a community asset, which is a football club, even if you know the legal ramifications aren't the same like that, um, I, I don't think fans of the team should be prevented from attending the match just because they can't afford a season ticket. Because it's only season ticket holders that can go at the moment. Only That's the only home fans that can attend, right? I, I believe that's right. There, I did see something about Chelsea saying that they were willing to not charge for the tickets. We just want our fans to be there kind of thing. 
So it it seems like there's some that there's the the will to have some solution reached here. That just that it doesn't have to be Chelsea making money from from the sale of tickets. I think mm. is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, hundred percent. So. Uh, I think I think you can you can get to a place where this is all in aid of a good cause, and you're not punishing the individual supporters who didn't, you know, have a role in producing the steel that made the Russian tanks. You know, the Chelsea fans haven't haven't done that. Some of them chanted Roman Abramovich's name during a minute's silence for the or minutes applause for the uh, Ukraine victims, and I think that's completely distasteful. Um, and I'd rather those fans weren't allowed back, but I don't quite know how you single them out. But we say that, but can we separate Chelsea as an as an entity from its Russian influence kind of thing? And I know that goes like that has deeper questions, but but well, has it not already been separated from that? I mean, yes, they've got a squad of players that wouldn't have been assembled without that money. It's a club that for the last twenty years has been fe- that has been mm. built on this Russian I mean, money. Le- legally, it's it's no longer. Um, in control of you know a, um, a a vessel of the Russian state, is how we say, or an oligarch anyway. Um, so it's it's a tough one because Chelsea was around before the money came in. Yes, they weren't as successful, and they didn't have this squad of players that was going to win a couple of European cups and multiple Premier League titles. But they were like a top half good Premier League team. Yeah, you know they were like a. I don't know what a good comparable example is um, because so many of those mid-table clubs have been super up and down. But like they were like a Leicester City type, you know, um, you know Leicester City of the last few years, say like Fringe, Champions League, UEFA Cup kind of team. Uh, they had some fun players. Like it, it wasn't as if there were some, some club, like it's not as if they're RB Leipzig, mm. like a club pl- plucked from obscurity um, because they were cheap, you know, to – buy and turn over and change the name of and then propelled up through the divisions by the money and they have no resemblance to what they were before Abramovich came in. So I I think it is almost unfair to the fans who pass on this love of the team generationally uh, to basically, um, you know, shut them out from the games. I agree that Chelsea as an entity does exist independent of mm. Russian influence, existed prior to that, will it continue to exist? And I think that the most important thing is that, that that's been severed, that tie. I think yeah. that, that that's really important in this instance. But I wonder if, I, if I'm... Well, uh, yeah, it's... I mean, Chelsea is a financially powerful institution, or they will be as soon as they're sold to, to whatever mm. commercial interest comes in and, and buys them. I think can do something to um, to make make the the past right, I suppose. And we talked about, you know, money going in the right direction. I, th- I think you talk about how, uh, I guess, countries have dealt with atrocities that they've committed um, and, uh, like, there has to be, a, I guess, some recriminations for that. Um, and maybe some initiatives to uh, recognise wh- where that money has come from and recognise the historical wrongs that that come with it. Uh, I don't think you can just wipe the slate clean with the new owner. Mm. But at the same time, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm uneasy about keeping the fans out because they're saying the season ticket holders can go because they've already bought it. 
But those are, by and large, not just the most committed group of fans, but they're also the wealthiest group of fans. So you're actually shutting out, you know, the more, you know, lower middle class Chelsea fans from attending games. Yeah. <laughs> if they can only afford to go to, you know, three or four games a season, it seems like a weird split to me. Yeah, and I think... As you were speaking, I was remind, like it's complicated further by the fact by, by Roman Abramovich, the figure themselves, in the sense that even though that's where we, we know where the money's come from and and mm. the inescapable relationship between those two things, I think that Abramovich personally has clearly shown that he's trying to do the right thing as much as he can. And that it seems like it. I mean, he certainly made a big. I mean, I, I guess you would once all of your assets around the world have been seized. Well, you, you've yeah, got to, right. you know, and he's been kicked out of several countries that he's trying to escape to. I, I guess maybe he's trying to repair his public image. I mean, it's uh, it's yeah. his motivations are unknown. We can't read the guy's mind, but no. you know, I don't. Th- I don't know if those motivations are clear. It's fair. It's mm. fair. Anyway, but there's other ownership stuff going on in, in the UK. There, there is. I mean, just, just to finish on that, of course, Chelsea, uh, I think they've set the deadline of April 11th by which the mm-hmm. final deadlines, ha- by which the final offers need to be made by various parties. That is are that your final offer? Yeah, exactly. Various parties on a short list. We're hearing lots of Americans and I think one of the owners of Atalanta is also in talks related mm. to that kind so of thing. So that's Atalanta of Italy, not Atlanta of the uh, I believe of it is MLS. Atalanta, not yes. okay. Atlanta. Um, but, but dare I say, perhaps not the most interesting ownership rumour that we've seen in the last little <laughs> while. Uh, apparently, George Clooney, George Clooney, mm. uh, interested in buying Derby County or, or, or purchasing a stake in Derby County. Right. Which has come kind yeah, of... Yeah, I mean, I, when I think of Derby County, I think of Hollywood glamour. I think so, you yeah. Know, I, I think of Glitz and Glam. Mm. Wayne Rooney and George Glitz, Clooney. Glam and Rams. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Not the first Hollywood actor to buy a football club in the UK, though. No, there's all the stuff with Ryan Reynolds, isn't there, at, mm-hmm. at Wrexham. And the guy from It's Always Sunny that I don't know the name of, but our producer Lockie definitely will. Charlie Day. <laughs> We're on top of this. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, the, the, the increasing... Is it Charlie Day or is it the other guy? He's well, shaking his head at me. Ch- Charlie Day. Cool, awesome, definitely. Yeah, it's it's the other guy. Okay, <laughs> our producer was wrong. Rob McElman, Mc 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 something. Rob Mc something, and uh, Ryan Reynolds owning uh, Wrexham, of course, the uh, the Welsh club. It's, I suppose. Well, I suppose relative to some of the other ownership takeovers that we've seen, having Hollywood actors come in is probably the like not the most evil prospect. If, they no. would, if that would be the next wave of football ownership with a bunch of cool people already with public profiles going, yeah, I'll add a football club to it. Why not? Mm. I mean, it depends if any of them have a history of, you know, slapping anyone at award ceremonies, I suppose. But That's right. That's a, that's a really good point. <laughs> I, as far as I know, George Clooney uh, does not have that reputation. That'd be a great... He, he, I reckon, you know, he'd be a great person to be signing off on, on negotiations and so forth. Like, he's a suave <laughs> operator. We've all seen Ocean's Eleven. He'd be very persuasive. The guy can... The guy can can come up with a plan and execute it. You know, he's he's sort of got that. Uh, uh, like you, you could just imagine him. He's a power dresser, firm handshake. You know, he could he could charm a few 
other uh, owners and so forth into into maybe some deals that they wouldn't otherwise make. Imagine him and Daniel Levy. Like <laughs> we know we know Daniel Levy is enthralled to celebrity. Mm. We've all we've all seen the Tottenham doco. Mm. We've all seen his breakfasts with Jose Mourinho. Where Jose Mourinho is loudly chewing his granola and and sort of murmuring in agreement at Daniel Levy, who thinks he's having a genuine conversation. Imagine Derby County swanning in, wanting one of Tottenham's players. George Clooney, twinkle in his eye, turning on the charm. Levy would would fall over himself to to agree a deal. Very similar individuals, Daniel Levy and George Clooney, aren't they? Like I'm just the the. That was a joke. The, yeah. the, 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 no, that's what I'm saying. It's, like, it's a bit of an odd. I, I think. I think you like some of these. Some of these, you know, apparently hard line, mm. you know, tough negotiators would be blown out of the water if, if George Clooney stepped into it, the it's room. A good, Daniel Levy hasn't had to deal with a George Clooney type before, really. Mm, has no, he? This, 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 you know. Week. You know, he sweeps you off your feet. No, that's right. I, I find the image of those two in a room having a conversation <laughs> very funny, I have to say. I can't wait for uh, the next All or Nothing if, if, if that actually <laughs> happens. But... Yeah, who, who's going to be George Clooney's Robin at Derby County? Is, it, is Wayne Rooney Robin then? Is I guess so. Are we go, we're going all the way to Tim Burton's Batman, are we? That's where I'm going. Is it Tim Burton's Batman that was Clooney? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. These are the questions um, that this is not for. <laughs> uh, is that the one with all the puns in it? Joel Schumacher. Oh, that's that's Joel Schumacher's Batman, is it? Is that the uh, the one with uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger? The jokes. Yeah, that yeah, all one. the puns. Yeah, no, I used to see you. That's yeah, right. that's my favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Derby County is in many ways a sleeping giant of English football. You know, we don't think of them that way. They've got the worst ever Premier League season. Mm. All they did, I don't know if that record's still intact or not. I think it is. I think it is, yeah. Um, they're in financial ruin. You know, there's all these stories about the players having to, you know, they can't put on a bust of the game or whatever, and Bruni paying for his, you know, <laughs> own water bottles and things. Like, yeah, they're, they're, they're penny-pinching at the moment, but they actually have a very sizable following. You know, they have won the English First Division in years past with, with Brian Clough. Like, they they have a really proud history and a, and a, a quite large uh, supporter base. So I think it would be great to see them back in the Premier League with some serious backing. Yeah, and I mean, they've, you know, you mentioned all the turmoil that they've been through over the last couple of years, but they've really impressed people under mm. Wayne Rooney this season. They, they are currently bottom of the championship. Didn't they have a massive points deduction? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So they, they had points deductions and they had some points deductions taken off and stuff. It's, it's, uh, it's been hard to keep up with, but they mm. are at present on the bottom of the table, they're looking, despite their best efforts, like they're going down. I mean, there's stuff about Wayne Rooney playing, p- paying staff's wages and stuff. Mm. So he's he's kind of building a reputation there as well. So that that has, you, you speak about them as a sleeping giant and it has potential to be quite an exciting, as much as it probably doesn't feel like it right now, but mm. a couple of years down the track, a, a, an exciting rise up the ranks to kind of, rise from the ashes situation going on. I wonder I wonder how rich George Clooney is. Like can he bankroll a club into the Premier League? Is he that level of wealthy? I mean, he's he's got a pretty successful wife as well. She's like an international human rights lawyer or whatever. So she's, you know, if she's not doing pro bono work all the time, she's probably raking it in. Like I we we think about these celebrities and so forth and we imagine they're they're cashed up, but compared to some of these business magnates that run football clubs, Probably comparatively not, not that rich, but probably comparatively more fun. I would imagine. Uh, it definitely looks like Wrexham having a good time. Mm, like, exactly. Why wouldn't you be? Positive publicity going on there at the moment. So you know, Derby needs some of that. So that exactly. It, it's it's a, it's a long term. And anything is better than what they've ploy. got. 
I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, because yeah, <laughs> anything is better than than this than points deductions, administration. You know, owners bleeding club dry, Rooney paying all the staff. Like this can't go on. No, I think that's right. But I mean, I, I think Hull City also got recently taken over, but that was more of a serious business person thing mm. going on. So there, there, there are things going on here, and maybe George Clooney's probably got more going for him as as an image publicity thing than actually behind the scenes. But as you say, nonetheless, I think the Derby. I, County- I wonder if he'd be a sole owner if he'd lead a consortium. Maybe this. Maybe he's uh, backed by. How other- much does he know about football? A lot of a lot of Hollywood actors are, are football fans. You know, they yeah. get converted. I, I doubt he's a Derby County fan. <laughs> I can't. I can't imagine that George Clooney like knew anything about them until like someone floated the the idea of you know they're they're this stricken club that you'd be able to pick up from virtually nothing. <laughs> uh, like, I I can't imagine you know out of all of the 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 you know games that are shown on TV in America uh, or you know all of the. FIFA mat- games that you might have stumbled across, you'd pick out Derby County as no. your your team. No, probably not. Maybe you just like the fact that there was a sheep on the badge. I don't know. Maybe he likes sheep. I mean, he was in that Men Who Stare at Goats movie, <laughs> so it's it's close. I don't think there are any goat teams in the. All right, we've done enough on this. We should probably go to a break. <laughs> we should probably go to a break. <laughs> it might be time to go to a break. All right, we'll, we'll see you for the last little segment after this final break. And we're going to be looking ahead to the fixtures coming up. Head to the fixtures? Yeah. We, we, with no more international break. We, can you tell us an international break episode <laughs> of the EPO show? You might be able to. But we've got some actual, actual soccer to talk about on mm-hmm. the other side. Just before we head into some of the more on-the-pitch-related stuff, we've got another weekend of Premier League coming up. I did just want to take a moment to acknowledge and recognise the contributions of Mike Dean to English football over many years. He has announced he's retiring at the end of the season. Should I get some emotional music going underneath this? If you can find it quickly enough. Uh, no, that's not worked. Okay, okay. Give, me, give me two seconds. Give me two seconds. Just stall for <laughs> Just a minute. Tread water. Just tread water for a minute say, here as we as, as we find an appropriate track to salute the outgoing, the, the most flamboyant of the referees. The, let's say the engaging. Um, you you loved him when he wasn't refereeing your side, less so when it was your side. This is classic. Uh, <laughs> I I think I speak for all of us when I say Mike Dean will be missed in some capacity. He, no one has brandished the no look yellow card like Mike Dean. No one has embraced the live play dummy like Mike Dean. No one has understood the art, the performance that is refereeing. The performance art, if you will. (laughs) If I I may. That is Mike Dean. He he's box office and we will miss him for it. Was he a good referee? Arguable. Was he an entertaining referee? Mike Dean understood that this football thing, it's, it's bread and circuses. Is the competitive integrity of the game that important? Yes and no. Yes and no. Is it more about giving us something to talk about on the train home? That's what he was all about. 
my highlight of Mike Dean's refereeing career, celebrating a successful advantage. <laughs> What's the fun where he's going like this? Uh, which cost him. You know, it cost him his, uh, in his re- reputation among fans because they thought he was a Tottenham supporter. Mm. He's not. He goes for like Plymouth Argyle or something. Is it... Uh, Tranmere. I think it might be Tranmere. Yeah, Tranmere it's one of those. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a lower like League One or League Two club he, he actually supports. But as a referee, I can attest to the satisfaction of the successful advantage call. Yep. You feel like you've got an assist. Yep. You feel like you got an assist for the goal. You feel like I held off. I didn't go too early. I didn't blow my whistle. I gave the attack the opportunity to develop. And look at them take advantage of it. Every what I what I planned has come to fruition. If I played a successful advantage in the Premier League, and they scored a goal after appealing for the foul, I'd pump my fist too. If Jared Gillett does it this weekend, I'll be jumping up and down. I'll be that excited. Well, because I'm, I'm sure he's refereeing a game this weekend. Yeah, I mean, my my. I was going to say, I think we should have this going the whole show. This is this is just <laughs> the, the atmosphere is just incredible. Until we get a DCMA claim from Mr. Botticelli, <laughs> but um, Bocelli, I should say. Um, <laughs> Mike Dean, I, we salute you. Let me say my my, my quickly my favourite Mike Dean memory that comes to mind is uh, but where speaking of his support of Tranmere, where there was the footage of him in the Tranmere support, you mm. know, celebrating a goal and. And, you know, I think that really sums up that Mike Dean showed us the humanity that is mm. refereeing and, and working in the world of football. And that's a be- well, 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 he was flawed. Mm. He was flawed. Egotistical, some might say. Egotistical. Centre of attention when he shouldn't have been. Dramatic. Yep. But, but, he, but, but he... Unforgettable. 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 <laughs> so long. And, and that was a weird thing that we just did. <laughs> um, I, I apologise. I, um, I don't. I, I stand by it. Okay, sorry. No, you're right. We stand by it. Anyway, <laughs> um, moving swiftly along, uh, we, we there's also football happening this weekend, Josh. Yeah, and, you know, some of it will, um, will can, you know, involve referees. Referees. But, you know, all of it will, in fact. But none of them, none of them quite... As you know, I'll stop it. Uh, <laughs> I'll stop. I'll finish the bit. We'll move on. Um, yes, uh, Liverpool will be in action against Watford. Manchester City taking on Burnley, the two title rivals. Do you have a pick for who might drop points, or are you are you thinking uh, three apiece? Well, it's safe to say that they'll both win, isn't it? I, I can see Burnley grinding out a one-one draw. Mm. They're in bit good of, form at of, the moment. Bit of Voot action. Voot Voot one. Score an equaliser. Yeah, I think that's right. Voot one football. 60, Sorry. 67th minute. Voot Vegas. Just make sure you caught that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wouldn't, wouldn't want that have, to have gone unnoticed. No, yeah, no, that's, no. That's right. And of course, the, the title race getting very exciting, isn't it? All of a sudden, just one point between Manchester City and Liverpool, having both played 29 games. Liverpool have clawed back over time, over the last few weeks. And to be honest, I'm really surprised that they've managed to do it because it looked maybe a month ago like this season was dead and buried. City had, were building their their, mm. their advantage. Everything was falling their way. You felt like City have got the better squad depth. They'll, there's no reason that this wouldn't continue in this way. But Liverpool have been super impressive. I mean, say what you like about Guardiola. When the man is, is down in a game, 
or he's it's not going his way, he stays hydrated. <laughs> Does anybody drink more water when they're losing or drawing than Pep Guardiola? That's all I ever see from him. Just slugging from those plastic water bottles over and over again. And to me... It looks almost like a nervous... T- like, how does the guy stay on the touchline for 45 mm. minutes at a time? Yeah. How does he have time at halftime between the extended bathroom break, I imagine, would accompany, you know, his right. mad dash down mm. the tunnel? <laughs> like, I don't ima- I don't imagine he has any time to, to talk to the team. And I think that's why they drew against Crystal Palace, you know? It must, yeah. Mm. I, look, I think there's, there's validity to that point. Um, what was I saying before about uh, it being easier to talk about personalities than, uh, than <laughs> tactics? <laughs> but Pep Guardiola drinks a lot of water. Yep. Yeah, that's right. So big game for those two, of course. Watford as well, though they've looked a bit better under Can't Roy Hodgson. No. Okay, please move on. <laughs> not, not. I had a joke coming to my head that wasn't appropriate for the broadcast. All so right, let's 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 keep going. I wonder if that's why Jose Mourinho kicked those water bottles all those years ago. It was like it was a, it was a <laughs> Pep Guardiola sub- a, mind games. Yeah, it yeah. was a hidden like message. Like he, he was trying to. It was so angry. Yes. Uh, Leeds, Southampton, Leeds looking like a better side under mm. Jesse Marsh now. Uh, Wolves, Villa, Villa. That, that, we got the, the Midlands derby there. Villa uh, a bit up and down under Stevie G, but generally look like a, a fairly decent side, as do Wolves. So that should be a really interesting game, I would contend. I, I, I was struck by Stevie G's comments on the last match day. Was it when they played Arsenal? It was a couple yes, of weeks ago. Now. I think that's right. Yeah, uh, but Bakaya Saka was asking for some more protection from the referee, and uh, it, it was the most luddite response possible. I mean, talk about you know middle aged men yelling at clouds. Mm. You know, you know he'll learn. He'll learn. You know, he he said something about he loves talking about the screws in his hips. You know, he said something like, "I've got screws in metal screws in both my hips." Um, you know, I'm struggling to go to the gym at the moment. Like that's what that's what football is. It's suffering, and uh, therefore Bukayo Saka, when he is forty, should you know have difficulty walking to his car. <laughs> like it hurts me to stand here and talk to you. There is no position in which my my shattered body, mm. after this cruel playing career that I subjected it to, there's no position that I can be in that is comfortable. Um, you know, because I've been hacked to smithereens by uh, you know less talented players who were trying to defend me. And therefore, Bukayo Saka, because it was tough for me, should be subjected to the same treatment. Because that's what men do. Yeah, that was how it was in the old days. And, you know, my father hit me and therefore I'll hit my child. Like, that's that's literally the logic. That's the logic that Stevie G was operating on. So I hope uh, the coaching that he's giving to these Aston Villa players is a little bit more forward-thinking than, uh, you know, than what he came out with in the post-match press conference. And obviously with... You know, a player like, let's say, Felipe Coutinho, he's a player who would undoubtedly suffer from that more than most in terms of the being targeted by opposition, trying to just cut the player down to stop them from doing that. So I'd be interested to see his response when that the, the opposite happens, mm. which it inevitably will, you'd imagine, because of that kind of mentality. So I don't... Not, not do your... We speak about the emotional post-match responses. It sounds like a bit of an emotional post-match response from... From Stevie there, yes, but he keeps bringing it up. He keeps bringing okay. up the screws in his hips. I think he needs a he needs a, like a new physio or something, yeah. a new rehab person, or you know, better pain meds because he seems to be struggling. Uh, but uh, yeah, Stevie G, the Aston Villa have definitely improved, been more, I would say, more disciplined since he came in. Yep, more, uh, haven't always been amazing to watch. 
You know, they've been... I think they've been better, better? under Stevie G than okay. they were under Dean Smith. Um, you know, when you fit Coutinho and Buendia in that team, you get lots of fun creativity. You've got... Yeah, I, I remember in the first few games when he came in, they, they were... They just decided to shut mm. up shop. And I think yeah. since then, it seems to have developed a bit further beyond that initial impulse to just stop the goals going in. But I think also Luca Dean at fullback, I mm. think he's been a really valuable... Logistic. That's true. Um, uh, act of, uh, Rafa's last act of yes. Everton sabotage yeah. to sell Luca Dina to his to his old player. I'm sure Everton wouldn't be benefited by having Luca Dina <laughs> at all at the moment. The club that lost 120 million pounds last year. That's right. Yeah, they, they are they are tanking, and and you know uh, maybe there was not enough room for Frank Lampard and Stephen Gerrard in England's midfield. There doesn't seem to be enough room for them both in the Premier League at the same time as managers. Mm-hmm. Everton are going down. I'm telling you. I'm sorry to say it. I know you're a, a sort of Everton fan. I watched the um, the FA Cup game between Crystal Palace and Everton mm. when Palace won four nil. Yep. Um, it was comprehensive. It's it's just the first fifteen minutes from Everton. The plan was run really hard, put on lots of pressure. Don't give them any space. Press high intensity, chaotic. Then there was a terrible injury to Andros Townsend. And then for the remaining 75 minutes, Everton looked completely lost and had no idea. And I know that when Frank Lampard first came in and Everton got a couple of good results, uh, they got, you know, they beat Brentford. There were, I think, some okay results in the Premier League. I spoke about at least there's some, some ambition, some intensity, some passion from the playing group at the moment. I, I think I said I can't guarantee that that will transform into long-term success, but at least there's something. At this point, that something is nowhere near enough because Everton look completely tacni- tactically inept. We're seeing Frank Lampard lash out in post-match press mm. conferences as well. And you say Everton's going down. The only thing that could save Everton is if the teams below are really bad. And at the moment, Watford and Burnley look better than Everton. So... I'm. It's dangerous. It's really dangerous. Well, as you were talking there, I was, I was trying to, I was trying to dig up the the clip where he just threw his players under the bus. It was quite incredible, really. It it, it really was. I'll, I'll see if we can we can play it here. But you know, with, with some managers, it just comes down to the the plain and simple. There's only so much you can keep trying to butter someone up to give them confidence. There's a balance of confidence stroke. We're playing at the cutthroat end of football here. This is a quarterfinal today to get to Wembley. And if you haven't got the confidence to play, then I'll, you can quickly flip it and say, have you got the um, the bollocks to play? Sorry, excuse me, but I can't, you know, that's that's the football reality. Um, and if you fall somewhere in the middle, then don't worry about it because we didn't play that badly today and Palace didn't play that well today and we lost 4-0. Because of a lack of confidence and a lack of what I just said, so um, <clears throat> wasn't tactics. Tactics showed in the first twenty minutes. Palace couldn't get out of half. Um, so when you do things right within that within that structure, you'll be all right. If you can't be clinical in front of goal, you won't score goals. You won't feel like you're going to score goals. If you allow people to stroll into to your box and finish with ease, they'll finish with ease. So um, real basics. Just comes down to the bollocks. It's pretty pretty simple, Oscar. Well, I'm glad to have got some validation for my claim that the first 15, 20 minutes were okay. Yeah, there you go. He was yeah. he was on board with that. There, there we go. We're on the same page. 
if you compare, uh, but the 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 suggestion it, it literally goes back to what we were saying at the start, just about lazy being lazy in our analysis of things, and to say it's not. A ta- it's not a tactical problem. It's just about effort. Because the tactics would be down to who? Well, exactly. It's, it's, it's the tactics would be Frank Lampard's responsibility, it's... Um, and the bollocks would be, uh, I guess, the players' responsibility yeah. as to whether or not they possess an adequately sized pair. And it's infuriating when it's demonstrably untrue. Like it's not true that that was a lack of, courage. let's say, fortitude. Yes, courage, fortitude, intensity. testicular or otherwise. Yeah. Well, it's you know. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's. Indeed, but it's and and it's just wrong and it's just untrue and I I don't know to what extent Frank actually believes that or if he's just putting it out there. But it it feels it, it's is it's either a very worrying insight into how he views football, or it's a cynical diversionary tactic from his own failings and something that's almost certain to offend the player group and and lead to him losing the dressing room. I, I, I honestly think Everton are doomed with this guy in charge. It's just so hard to believe that that's how... The, the, the Frank Lampard couldn't see that the last 70 minutes against Crystal Palace were tactically inept. That, like, mm. I do, I, that can't be true. Surely that's not true. But, you know, that, that, that kind of response indicates otherwise. Well, I guess that's all we've got time for on uh, on the EPL show tonight. We've we've, we've covered a lot of topics. I, I, no, no, I'm going to make one more point. I'm going to yeah, cut go you on. off. I'm going to make go one on. more point. Which hey, is, it's, it's your show, mate. Which is the distinction between you know an Everton as they have been looking horrendous, and and say a Tottenham Hotspur who we've seen really up and down in the last few weeks. Incredibly inconsistent. Right, but the the even when Tottenham aren't playing well, I feel like I can see what they might be trying to do or I can see some tactic that isn't working so that you can go, well, I can accept that that might be a work in process. Or maybe you might even say, sorry, a work in progress. You might even say, oh, they don't have the players to fill those roles, but if they had this player there, that would work a lot better. You can see the blueprint. I I can see what the team's trying to do is what I I think. And Mm. I don't know to what extent that's me importing that because I believe Antonio Conte is a better manager or whether that's that's real I can I can literally see what's going on but I I am yet to see a single tactical change from Everton that isn't run really hard and try really hard and that's the worrying thing is because that's consistent with what he just mm. said which is you just gotta be good more manly be, be more badly have great fortitude run hard tackle hard win the ball have bolts in your knees and hips by the time you're 40. That's that's the c- common theme from today's show. Yeah. Things were better in the old days where men were real men. Yeah, that's, that's right. St- <laughs> I mean, that's the Premier League for you. Take me back <laughs> to, to the days. No, but that is that is probably all the time we have for tonight. Thank you very much for the show, Josh. It has been a pleasure as always. But we will hopefully see you next week. <laughs>